1: Jazz is often dubbed the greatest American original art farm, and this claim might be difficult to contend, but a close exploration of the folks who created, listened, and participated in jazz environments can also tell us a lot about the religious history of those people. In his new book, Spirits Rejoice, Jazz and American Religion, Jason Bivens argues that jazz is a unique and underexplored venue for investigating American religious history. Bivens explores jazz through common components of religious communities and traditions, including as forms of ritual, institutional structures, practices of healing, and jazz cosmologies. He begins with an outline of the deep connections between jazz musicians and their relationships with specific religious traditions, including Islam, the Black Church, Baha'i ethics, Buddhism, and Scientology. He also outlines how artists engage in historical self-reflection and and the production of religious narratives. In our conversation, we discuss analyzing religion and music, the difficulties and opportunities of examining wordless artifacts, spaces of religio-musical practice, the role of performative and improvisational aspects of jazz, the sonic architecture of metaphysical worlds, egolessness and the divine, racial imaginaries, and forms of American spirituality. Of course, we talked about A lot of wonderful musicians, too, including John Carter, Sun Ra, Duke Ellington, Wynton Marcellus, John Coltrane, Mary Lou Williams, Ornette Coleman, and many, many others. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jason Bivens. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Thanks for having me,
1: Kristen. So this is a really wonderful book. Uh, you know, as a jazz fan and somebody who studies religion, this is it's unique. You, you note in the book that there's there's not a lot of scholarship on this, and uh, I'm glad you're you're filling that gap. But before we get to the the content of the book, the the tradition here at New Books in Religion is to to find out a little bit about you and your journey to the study of religion. So could you tell us a little bit about your background, perhaps? Uh, mentors or moments in your your training that were influential, that brought you to the types of things you study or the ways you approach them?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, in retrospect, things probably started taking shape far earlier than I recognized at the time. Um, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., in a religious family, but did not grow up uh, feeling especially religious myself, but I was always fascinated by what religious people did in public life. And I guess that makes sense growing up in D.C. in the 1980s when conservative religiosity and, and Reagan era nostalgia politic were very much in the air. So I started becoming fascinated with, with why these particular kinds of identities had assumed uh, what appeared to be a kind of normative place in public life at that time. But when I went off to college at Oberlin, I really didn't have any intention to study religion. I wanted to study um, political philosophy more than anything else. When I enrolled in philosophy classes at Oberlin, it turned out that this was a heavily uh, analytic, Anglo-American analytic department focused on philosophy of language and, and logical positivism and things which have much merit, but which didn't have a whole lot of interest to me at the time. So for very practical reasons, uh, that is to say, because they were teaching better philosophy books, in my estimation, I ended up in a couple of modern religious thought classes. And as I took more and more modern religious thought classes and read all the Kierkegaard and the Kant and the Nietzsche that I wanted, uh, it turned out that I actually, lo and behold, got interested in practice and history and things of this nature. And after my uh, short-lived attempt at being a rock star failed, um, I decided it was time to go off to graduate school and try something else for a change. And I ended up at Indiana University, and I met a whole host of amazing teachers and amazing fellow graduate students at the time and decided that academia was probably for me. And while this was happening, I got slowly more and more involved, not not so much in a different set of questions. I was still fascinated by the political, but I ended up being um, pretty obsessed with religious social criticism and cultures of religious protest. And that was a more sort of historically grounded sociologically grounded way for me to get at the things that had been uh, compelling me since I was a teenager.
1: Now, this project is uh, somewhat different from some of the other work you've done in the past. So can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge when you started to think, okay, this is actually a book book project as opposed to kind of just a side interest I have? Um, Yeah. And how does it relate to your both your personal life, but then also to your larger research trajectory?
0: Yeah, that, I mean, these are questions that I'm still kind of uh, working my way through, um, because all books, as you know, have afterlives as well. And then and then we struggle to see them in relationship to the other stuff that we've done and, and things that we might be interested in doing in the future. So I initially started, um, w- w- when I was focusing on, on religious social critics and religious protests, like I was mentioning... I was very interested in in how religious bodies comported themselves um, under the gaze of audiences, particularly audiences who don't necessarily share religious convictions. You know, How, in other words, do religious protesters mark their difference from political order as conventionally um, construed? So to get at that particular question, uh, I ultimately ended up writing about um, the late Daniel and Philip Berrigan in this regard. Uh, but to get at that question, I took this uh, really significant class – on the Anthropology of the Body with the gifted Australian anthropologist Michael Jackson. And uh, Professor Jackson really encouraged me to work out my theoretical ideas in relationship to something that I wasn't dissertating about. And as I was getting involved uh, in in, in my personal life, as I was getting more involved in improvisational music, um, some of which might be called jazz, some of which might be called something else, he really encouraged me to think about what improvisation meant for bodies, what improvisation did to bodies, uh, and how bodies improvised, and and so that was really my first, very tentative foray into uh, what would eventually become Spirits Rejoice, and and I started to think about how improvising African American bodies in particular might be up to something at least tangentially related to the religious protest I was examining elsewhere. That is to say, how does improvisation, how does the performance of jazz possibly constitute um, a kind of social defiance or at least a flouting of expectation as to what actually constitutes black subjectivity, black religiosity, and so forth? So that was my first academic uh, entry into this conversation, but but I, I very quickly after this class ended uh, suspended that practice um, for practical reasons and for personal reasons. The practical reasons um, were were the obvious ones. I was dissertating; I had to get stuff done. But the personal reasons um, these are what eventually ended up getting challenged um, as life went on. I wanted to keep uh, all things musical. In a non-academic space, because I was practicing a lot, I was performing a lot, I was touring and doing all this other stuff. And I wanted to keep music uh, in in what I imagined was a kind of pure part of my life. I didn't want to trouble it over much with uh, academic fussing. I didn't want to over-theorize it and so on. And I have every expectation that as the years went by, and I got this job in North Carolina, I had every expectation that somebody else would or, – or, or maybe more than one somebody else would write books on jazz and religion because I knew – The more I observed it, the more I wrote about it. Um, I'm also a jazz reviewer. That's the writing that I did. But the the more involved I got in the music, the clearer it was to me that at absolutely every phase of the music called jazz is evolution and development and proliferation into manifold subgenres. Religions were there all along, Um, not just in the United States either, but but this was abundantly clear to me. So I thought, man, there are definitely books to be written. I'm going to look forward to them being written because I want to read them. Well, they didn't get written. Uh, every so often, uh, a book chapter on a famous religious person would would come to my attention, um, or, or a book in jazz studies would be published dealing with sociology of the civil rights movement and so forth. But in, in jazz studies, you had these kind of really, really loose and unsatisfying treatments of religion, which was often reduced to this thing called spirituality. So I had this sense, as time was going by, of the big gaps in both literatures, religious studies and jazz studies, The music was still important to me. I still had the sense that it would be better if I kept it in a a thoroughly private place. But I got frustrated, quite simply, Christian, as the years went by. And I thought, somebody's got to write this book. And after my second book came out, I thought, all right. I need to take a break from writing about religion and politics because it it vexes me uh, analytically, <laughs> it vexes me personally, um, and and I had the encouragement of a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues, and I thought, and I had some time off as well, and I thought, okay, let's see what happens with this. So I holed up in the music library of our sibling institution here, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, the Wilson Music Library. And I had this ambition over the course of a semester's leave to read as much of the, the vast archive of jazz journalism in the Music Wilson Library as I could and see if there was any life there. Lo and behold, over the course of this semester, I found that there was a lot there. And I thought, OK, let's see what let's see what this archive begins to tell me. So that's how it got started.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, now. You, you've kind of already pointed a little bit about this, but uh, so the the book takes on this topic of religion and music here through the the EG of jazz. Um, what How are you trying to complicate or disrupt the approaches that you saw in previous scholarship? because you you kind of lay this out in the the first chapter. Um and also uh this this idea of religion and and how it's defined and and jazz and how it's defined these get played out in interesting ways uh, throughout the book. So um how how are you using these terms and uh, what do you see as kind of the religiosity of jazz as you 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 pose in the book a couple times?
0: Yeah, this is this is really in many ways the most interesting stuff to me and it's the stuff that I didn't necessarily intend to write about initially. So as is often the case with research, um, s- some of the things that ultimately end up being quite central to our writings emerge unexpectedly as problems midstream. And, and it's in being confronted with um, the need to resolve these problems that we can maybe step out of a comfort zone a little bit. And for me, this had everything to do with exactly these questions of how I was defining my terms. So I was very much aware that for the musicians, because I've had the good fortune to meet a bunch of musicians and play with musicians and talk with them long before I ever thought I was writing a book, very, very aware that the term jazz is problematic for a lot of the people um, who get slotted into this genre. So I kind of knew what to do with that, use scare scare quotes or what have you. But I was sort of you – know, as aware as I was and am about all the methodological uh, worrying of the R word in our discipline, I wasn't necessarily thinking that I would have a problem using it in the interview process. So uh, w- while it's probably reasonable to speculate that I would have written something about this had I not encountered a problem, um, the, the, the issue came up very quickly. And let me, t- let me explain this by an anecdote. So I've got all these contacts um, through jazz reviewing and, and, and my own practice and so forth. So I had this list of people. You know, I'm, I'm sort of in the in the midst of my archival work at this point, And I had this list of people, uh, 150, 200 people that I wanted to reach out to. So I composed what I thought was a pretty elegant email invitation. And I had all my addresses lined up, BCC, ready to go. And the subject line that I chose was research project jazz and religion. I hit send and 24 hours, 48 hours went by and I had one response And at this, at this point I was panicking and I was thinking this project has absolutely no legitimacy. Nobody's interested in talking to me. Um, and I thought, okay, I suppose I could do it if I don't have a raft of personal interviews, but it wouldn't mean the same to me. I don't think the contribution would be as significant. And late one night it struck me, maybe I should change the R word to the S word. So I sent the exact same email to the exact same people, but with a slightly amended subject line, research, project, jazz, and spirituality. And with that, the floodgates opened. And so it was clear to me from Mm -hmm. the very beginning of this process that I had to worry, I had to vex, I had to theorize the term religion, especially because to deal with jazz, as you know, as a fan, to deal with jazz specifically – We don't have a lyricist telling us what the religious content is. We don't have direct representations of religiosity in the way that one expects with other genres of music. And uh, except for some very few exceptions, we don't have jazz music being performed in recognizably religious spaces. So what initially struck me as a pretty considerable series of challenges all of a sudden emerged to me as possibilities for creative scholarship. So I wanted to do something right off the bat with the idea that both of these central terms that have to be in the title of my book are terms that are vexed by and questioned by, and in many cases discarded by, the practitioners. How then can I get at what is happening here religiously? How, in fact, do I even know that what I'm listening to is religious? That was a pretty fun question, and I wanted to run with that because that clearly has all kinds of parallels with longstanding methodological uh, debates in the field. Hmm.
1: The other thing that is a unique challenge for you is this idea of sound, and you you kind of pointed to this, this idea of uh, wordless text, so to speak. So Uh um, what do you see as some of the difficulties but also some of the opportunities of examining wordless artifacts
0: yeah, the, I was very frustrated by this for a long time. And, and to sort of deal with my frustration, I immersed myself ever further in the archive, right? And and so, as you know from reading the book, I generated all these themes, which we can talk about in a little bit. But in terms of sound itself, I realized after a time, and it might have been after a very long time, to, now that I come to think of it, but I realized that what I was really doing was investigating a particular mode of religious experience. And in fact, the book as a whole ended up being about religious experience and about whether it's possible to write about religious experience. It sounds very, very meta, and I suppose it is in certain uh, passages of the book. But I'd like to think that I got through this in, in a very concrete way. So I wanted to get at what the experience of sound was like. How did oscillation, how did uh, reverberation, how did timbre, how did line, how did rhythm – Manifest as properties of the religious itself. Clearly, what we're dealing with is ex post facto verbalizations and descriptions of these experiences, but it ultimately was something about immersion in sound and thinking about improvisation and its centrality of jazz, immersion in process Kind of irresolvable process, and the irresolvability as well is 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 very significant to a lot of the religious players that I spoke to and read about. There was something about that that struck me as really, really suggestive in terms of not just American religious history, uh, but the history of religions more generally. I don't know if I actually got to any reasonable solutions or or resolutions, but there was something about being in that space of unknowing, even as a scholar that really suggestively paralleled a lot of what the musicians themselves were telling me happened.
1: Now you, you, you kind of launch from there into probably what's the, the easiest aspect is thinking about how jazz is related specifically to religious traditions. Um, and I'll just let you kind of take it here you 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 discuss African the African American church, Islam, Buddhism, other traditions. Uh, what did you see as this kind of relationship between jazz and specific traditions?
0: It really changed um, not just depending on what tradition we were looking at but which representatives of those traditions I was choosing to foreground right and so throughout all this, of course is is my process of selection and and the very real um, recognition that other people would write different books with different themes with different musicians, but but on I went. So what I found was that um, w- w- while, I, while I was trying to put together these themes that are recognizable in the study of religion and that are sort of there all along throughout the history of jazz, however narrated, and, and I arranged these themes deliberately, as you say, um, from the most uh, familiar and expected, that is to say religious traditions, to probably the least expected, which is cosmologies. But what I wanted to do is show readers that even in the most expected places, there's continual mischief and improvisation happening. And we find in almost every instance things we wouldn't expect. So while, yes, we, 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 we can document in the case of African-American Christianity, clear musicological, sociological, historical, liturgical roots uh, in long-standing traditions of African-American Christian practice going back at least to the mid-19th century, at least the mid-19th century, we find in these traditions an incredible abundance, creativity, openness to other bodies of religious knowledge and religious experience that I think is the hallmark of jazz, broadly speaking, this kind of inclusiveness, this, this uh, playful quality with information, the willingness to try things on, discard them, move in different directions altogether. And the case studies that I chose, I hoped, would exemplify this. Um, So in the case of Albert Eiler, coming out of, of a kind of traditional, quote-unquote, traditional Baptist community in Cleveland, Ohio after World War II. Eiler goes on to explore free jazz as what he imagined was a kind of universal consciousness music for the coming space age, which he also, late in his life, started speaking about in communitarian terms and in terms that resembled um, nation of Islam discourse. So there's this kind of combinative openness, even in the most, I think, high bound spaces.
1: Now, the you move on here uh, to ideas about history uh, and mm-hmm. how music can capture these kind of uh, self-articulated narratives. So how did artists engage in historical self-reflection and the production of religious narratives?
0: Yeah, that was one that I didn't necessarily expect to encounter quite so regularly as I did. Um I think at least half the chapters were ones that I didn't imagine writing initially, and that, that was a really lovely thing. So I was aware of kind of v- very famous instances of, of jazz histories, and the most famous ones, of course, are um, Duke Ellington's historical suites and Wynton Marsalis's historical suite, um, uh, Blood on the Fields. But I didn't realize how consistently jazz musicians had done this, even, on, even if it was uh, in some cases on smaller scales. So I started to think about how this resonates, um, not just with the establishment of kind of counter public spheres, that is to say, here's our history that you mainstream America or you white America have gotten wrong. I started to think about these historical uh, musical settings as kind of declarations of purpose, declarations of identity. And and in this, suggestively, uh, the the research got back to this initial exploration of mine. Jazz is a kind of counter-representational practice, um, even if it's not typically discursive as it was in this chapter. That was a really interesting thing for me to play around with. So when I was looking at all the artists who dealt with historical materials between the Ellingtonian experiments, and and how fascinating it is that Ellington was was workshopping these ideas as early as the 1920s. Uh, I started to see multiple instances of not not so much typical historical narration as interpolations of, of different fragments of musical history. Um, different fragments of ritual history, um, even kinds of different instances of performing black history and identity in circumstances and settings where they were said to be, uh, quote-unquote, inappropriate. I'm thinking there of Charles Mingus in particular, who drew on African-American religious history in order to explode expectations about it. And what Mingus did here, just to explain for uh, for listeners, what, what Mingus did here was self-consciously, knowingly appropriate not only the tropes, but the musicological elements of African-American religious performance in order to confront white audiences, predominantly white audiences, with their limited expectations about what they could expect from black musical performance. Mingus himself was not only not especially Christian, Um, Mingus was also famously invested in the idea that um, music corporations, club owners, um, tour bookers and so on and so forth were invested in what he called a holding corporation called Old America. So Mingus tied his kind of uh, his challenges to musical expectations to longstanding histories of white oppression, of non-white subjectivities. Right. So I wanted to put that in conversation with the more conventional historical narratives of Ellington, Marsalis, and um, the the figure that most folks sadly probably don't know about, John Carter, and his incredible five-album historical suite documenting the African journey to the new world.
1: Yeah, and I actually just discovered John Carter uh, probably a year ago, and could you tell us a little bit about what he was up to in this this five LP uh, collection over a number of years?
0: Yeah, it's really extraordinary. Um, and, and one of the things that I really wanted, you know, I mean, they, they, obviously there are scholarly motivations and so on and so forth, but but I, I'm, I'm not exactly shy about telling readers that I want them to listen to the music, that I think um, it would be a nice thing if people would listen to jazz more and appreciate this absolutely incredible family of art forms. And Carter is, is really, um, you know, if, if I'm celebrating anybody sort of as, as a... a you know, uh, a, a non-traditional, a marginalized figure in this book that I think ought to deserve far more attention, Carter would be really, I think, Exhibit A of that. So I first encountered this guy's music, um, well, I first encountered this guy's reputation in 1992 when I bought the first edition of The Penguin Guide to Jazz on CD and LP, um, which is really the Bible for a certain generation of jazz fans. Um, and... I, uh, I, I had as a goal at one point to purchase every four or five star album listed in the guide. I'm still working on that. But um, as a young graduate student in American religions, I came across a description of this guy, John Carter, and, and these albums that you mentioned that I write about in the book. He was um, mostly a clarinet specialist, grew up in Texas in the post-World War II period. And this is a period when there were all kinds of um, hot, Tenor saxophonist from Texas migrating to other parts of the country. Carter got a couple of music degrees. He got a music education degree, and he ended up moving to Los Angeles in the very early 1960s uh, because there were jobs in the LA area, specifically music education jobs. And until his death, far too early in 1991, Carter was a local neighborhood music teacher and a very committed one by all uh, by all accounts. But he was very, very interested in musical exploration, um, though you wouldn't necessarily know it according to his day job, you know, running the scales with 13-year-olds and things like this. And he happened to uh, become close friends with a trumpeter and a cornet player named Bobby Bradford. Bobby Bradford was a friend and an associate of the great Ornette Coleman, um, the uh, the founder of this, this uh, very esoteric theory of music and religiosity called hormelotics. And Bradford had also relocated to the West Coast. So together, they started to explore what they called the new music. And there were there was nobody in L.A. who was really willing to book this stuff. So they developed their own performance settings. And in time, a kind of counterpublic emerged here. Um, and they had a band together, the New Jazz Art Ensemble. And in time, they started to see this, and this is the title of one of their albums, as self-determination music. And with this and – they're, and they're going through the Watts Riot 65 and they're, they're, they're trying to establish neighborhood performance settings, weekly Sunday afternoon jazz blues workshops as ways to kind of keep people from political violence and to keep them focused on creativity and community building. And it's with this kind of focus that Carter in particular – Bradford too, but especially Carter – became obsessed with finding resources in the past or what we academics are fond of calling a usable past. You know, this kind of stuff happens all the time um, with uh, quote unquote real people, right? We're not real people. Um, so Carter is up to this. And the first move he makes in the early 1970s, as he's switching to clarinet, um, uh, clarinet alone, he becomes interested in 19th century vernacular folk forms of music. And he starts exploring uh, the padding juba, he starts exploring the funky butt, you know, these these kinds of traditional forms that were um, present in all African-American music communities, performance communities. And from this, he eventually developed an interest in chronicling the cultures which gave birth to these musical forms. So from little things, big things come, as protest theorists like to say. And in time, and with the support of a few record companies, Carter began to actually write out the historical narrative, the musical historical and also um, consequently the religious narrative of the African journey to the New World. So he spent um, the first two albums um, in the Western African kingdoms. Uh, the third album chronicled and it's harrowing, it chronicled the Middle Passage. The fourth album and the fifth album relate most clearly to American religious history. Uh, the fourth album is called Fields um, which, which chronicles the slave experience itself. And the fifth album is called Shadows on a Wall, which which documents um, the Great Migration. And it's absolutely extraordinary music. Um, I know nothing like it. It's far more ambitious than Ellington. um, uh, And it's vastly more ambitious than Wynton Marsalis. And yet it received very little um, attention outside the the jazz cognoscenti, And I think that's a real tragedy. So if I ever win the lottery, um, (laughs) I'm going to try to Acquire the rights to these albums and give them the proper treatment that they deserve. Or, if not me, maybe somebody can do that.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll start a uh, a fundraising campaign now.
0: Let's do it, Kickstarter.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, there. I mean, I am I, feeling already that I could talk to you about this book for much longer than we're going to have. But uh, uh but I will continue to move on here. So, in in the the next chapter, you you talk about the communitarianism and mm-hmm. uh, this idea of the creation of intentional communities. So in what ways and for what purposes were were spaces of uh, religio musical practice being created?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with something that I just mentioned in conjunction with Carter. and in this I think we can we can link it to uh, communitarian histories in American religion as well. but in many cases, it, it, it was really a response – these community-building efforts were really responses to the dearth of performance opportunities in American cities, whether this is Chicago, St. Louis, New York, Los Angeles, or elsewhere. So because there's something and, – and you know, I have to say that this is, this is punk rock DIY long before punk was a glimmer in the cultural eye. Mm-hmm. Um, jazz musicians simply said, right, well, if you're not going to book us – and significantly, if you're not going to book us on our terms, then we'll book ourselves – so we see instances of this uh, as early as, the very going back to the Traditions chapter, the very first Jazz Messengers workshop. Uh, the Jazz Messengers was a band that for uh, almost a half century was was curated by the percussionist uh, and composer Art Blakey. Um, but it initially had its roots in an Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, network of musicians coming out of the bop scene in New York. And these musicians Wanted to pursue the idea that jazz was a kind of realization of Islamic universalist principles. And this clearly wasn't going to get any action at a local club. Um, so they developed their own apartment-based workshop, reading session, and jam session. That's kind of the root to a long-standing preoccupation in jazz history. And this is picked up in the 1950s uh, by Sun Ra, the the famous band leader from, depending on where you're sitting, Birmingham, Alabama, or the planet Saturn. Um, Sun Ra established this um, long-running big band institution, which he called the Orchestra. And he established a kind of jazz house for uh, intentional living and cosmological speculation. Uh, Other instances we see are kind of more easily formally annexed to uh, communitarian experiments. Um, And this is, I think, um, best seen in in the trio of urban initiatives, first with Chicago's The Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, then with St. Louis's Black Artists Group, and finally with uh, Los Angeles's Union of God's Musicians in Artists Ascension, really wonderful names. Um, so in all of these cases, we see um, economically and culturally marginalized African-American musicians establishing communal alternatives within their communities that really link uh, jazz pedagogy, Religious and historical pedagogy and community building initiatives that are in many ways very Alinskyite in their form. I saw this as a really suggestive parallel. As I mentioned, with uh, the, the the history in which Americans regularly establish communal, economic, and political alternatives to uh, a quote-unquote mainstream that they see as culturally and religiously debased.
1: You, you also have a chapter on ritual and uh, both the, the structure, but also the freedom of kind of ritual practice. So how, how was music perceived as a ritual medium for transformative experience? What was the role of performative and in, in, improm- improvisational aspects of this specific musical genre?
0: Yeah, it ended up being um, – this was kind of a tough the, – the, the latter trio of chapters were sort of increasingly tough to write about. That is to say I had to really stretch to marshal the appropriate scholarly resources um, because, because here, you know, we, previous to this, we have traditions, we have histories, we have communities. And, and while there were challenges there and while there was uh, far more there that was unexpected than I had intended – I really had to stretch out with the ritual uh, chapter and and those subsequent to it. So what I expected to find was the idea that performance itself constituted a kind of ritual. I found that, uh, but it was far less easy to write about than I expected. But I also found a couple of other manifestations of ritual. One manifestation was ritual as preparation for improvised practice, during which, according to some practitioners, all holds were you know uh, everything was was sort of thrown to the wind and the, and there was no there was no pattern there was no structure and the other thing i found was quite the opposite which is to say religious rituals that employed jazz to uh, to conduct themselves in more recognizably religious settings and circumstances and that really took the form of the fairly well-known jazz mass phenomenon that emerged with Mary Lou Williams in the late 1950s and early 1960s uh, examples of which also include Louis Belson, Paul Horn, Dave Brubeck, and of course, once again, Duke Ellington. But it was on these other two that I ch- that I concentrated the most. And I, I, I looked at, in order to get at the range of ritual practices, ritual expressions, I looked at the use of Afro-Cuban ritual music in jazz performance. I looked at... Um, Cardiovascular computer transcriptions and uh, musical arrhythmias. Um, uh, this is this is referring to the percussionist M- Milford Graves. I looked to um, all, all manner of kind of um, meditational practices that serve as preparatory foci prior to the improvisational event. And here's where I really had to sort of get into. Um, linguistic experimentation of my own in order to capture what musicians themselves avowed was actually going on. These these states where and, and you know it brings us back to graduate school in a certain sense, right? These are, these are states that Turner would call liminal, right? How do we give shape to that? What are the what what is actually going on here faster than we can usually process it? Where do where do religious practitioners where do musicians see and feel and hear and perform ritual even though it might not be detectable to us? that was fascinating to me. And that's really what I wanted to go for.
1: The, the, the following chapter is entitled jazz meditation and mysticism. And here you're looking at uh, issues of, of the relationship between self and other and how mm-hmm. egolessness uh, can connect us with the divine and in, in some ways. And uh, so what, what mystical tropes arise in the jazz archive that you're looking at? How did, musicians practice cultivating these states how do they describe them and mm-hmm. and where might we place them as scholars of religion
0: yeah this this again was a still more difficult chapter and what i noticed reading through all of these interviews and conducting interviews of my own was the regular use of the term vessel by musicians, and this was really the key trope because it links very clearly to a lot of known mystical traditions, Hindu mystical traditions, Islamic mystical traditions, Christian mystical traditions, and others. But musicians would say regularly that uh, – and there's a kind of weird irony here, or maybe it's not an irony so much as it confronts expectations, even even by fans, expectations of um, – Jazz musician is the ultimate expression of an individual's personality, the individual's will. But the irony that I had in mind when I began speaking a moment ago was for music that's so focused on soloing, uh, there is an abiding tradition in which musicians say the best music occurs when I get out of the way and let the creator play through me. So there's this, and that's the kind of thing that gets to the relationality that you had in mind, Christian. It's not only the relationality of the performer and the audience, it's not only the relationality of performers to other performers. Those are both really, really important relations, of course. But the fundamental relation for the practitioners is the relation between the source of music and the moment and what the moment requires. And here's where this vessel talk kept coming back in. The music plays me. I touch the horn and something happens. I feel the vibrations. And there was even this sense among some musicians, and I'm thinking of the tenor saxophonist Ivo Perelman, specifically here, who had what he calls a Jewish-Brazilian upbringing, um, one foot in Candomblé, the other foot in kind of Orthodox Judaism. Many musicians like Ivo believe that when improvisation commences. If it's done properly, if it is done with the right kinds of settings and goals in mind, that improvisation can connect to every other instance of musical performance happening, not just simultaneously, but throughout history. So that's a pretty intense series of connections. As to where that fits religiously, that's going to vary according to practitioner as well. Some really want to focus that on particular texts and settings. Um, Steve Lacey, for example, wanted to focus this on Taoism and Buddhism. Um, Perelman, as I mentioned, focused this on Kandamble, but also has regularly performed Jewish liturgical music. There are other traditionalists, though, who want to sort of explode the very idea of setting and simply immerse themselves into the sonic one. Um, th- that, too, has kind of a historical and comparative roots that we, the scholars, can link up to. But it's important for the practitioners themselves to believe and to experience that in playing, they're blasting beyond all particulars.
1: The the next chapter uh, I just love this idea of jazz cosmologies. Um, And you look at some really interesting examples and I'm sure there was even even other figures in the book that you could have uh, laid out here. So how were meanings of the beyond or alternative uh, worlds shaped through through jazz cosmologies, and how was the sonic architecture constructed in these metaphysical interpretations of the world?
0: Yeah, this was a super fun one to write um, as the son of a lifelong NASA employee uh, and as a guy who grew <laughs> up with pictures of other worlds on his wall. Um, you know, I, uh, th- there was something about uh, – and. I think on some level I did expect to write this chapter, but it was certainly kind of in the back of my mind. But I think about this kind of thing a lot when I teach my intro to uh, American religious history classes. And I'm always trying to tell my students that, you know, there's something about religion in the United States. It's not It's not unique to the United States, but maybe it happens more here than elsewhere. If Americans don't like the religions that are available to them – They've regularly just made them up. Um, and, and by saying this, of course, I don't mean that they're not true and that they have no, quote unquote, authentic experiential roots, but that we see abundant examples of American religious practitioners um, generating altogether uh, new information, new narratives, new experiences, things which have no apparent precedent. And I saw this reflected continually in jazz. So I wanted to document that. And it it was fascinating to me how consistently the attempts that I encountered and wrote about linked up not just to earlier American traditions of metaphysical practice and speculation in the 19th century sense, but also to uh, alchemical, esoteric, hermetic, and neoplatonic attempts to understand and to experience and to tap into a cosmos that many aspirants claim is fundamentally musical and as such can be notated. So I wanted to focus on the notational aspects. So how have practitioners developed their own systems for creating a kind of conduit to this sonically enchanted cosmos? And I looked at Ornette Coleman, the previously mentioned Ornette Coleman, George Russell – Anthony Braxton and Wadada Leo Smith um, most specifically. Sun Ra clearly would have belonged here, but I wanted to kind of challenge uh, expectations about what to expect from Sun Ra as well, so I put him in the histories chapter. That was my own little subversive move there. Um, But it was a really interesting notion to play around with, the idea that in the beginning of the book, we begin with these religious buildings, you know, places where we expect to find religion, and if jazz is played in a religious tradition, well then of course it has to be Buddhist jazz or Muslim jazz or what have you, moving all the way from buildings to outer space here in the, uh, the last case study. That was really that was my arrangement of the sounds.
1: Mm. Now, uh, you, in this chapter, you focus a little bit on Ornette Coleman, and you, you mentioned him uh, previously. And he might actually be one of the figures that uh, at least casual jazz fans m- may have heard of. So could you talk <laughs> a little bit of more about what his particular cosmology looked like?
0: Yeah, Coleman, who um, who died last year, Coleman was famously reticent um, in terms of providing actual concrete answers. Um, that was very frustrating to a lot of people. It was something that you could hear in his music as well. But he wanted to come up with an alternate way of thinking about performance that would generate different ways of being in the world, and that's clearly kind of a leitmotif in the book and throughout jazz history. But what he wanted to do, um, and he started thinking of this idea really quite early, in the early 1950s, when he was um, going on the road with bot musicians, he actually went on the road with a minstrel band at one point, going around the Deep South in particular, um, Coleman was another Texas guy. He wanted to to pursue the idea that playing jazz could be fundamentally religious but not in conventional ways. He didn't want to do church music, to put it that way. So he ended up exploring uh, a number of different religious traditions, moved out to Los Angeles, um, married a woman named Jane Cortez. They were, for a brief period of time, involved with the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Coleman believed that available religious options couldn't really get at what he believed God was, which was, and, and you know, he never really provided answers here, but depending on when he was speaking and to whom he was speaking, he might have defined God. You know, kind of simply prosaically as love might have defined God as pure sound. In some sense, Coleman was actually interested in the idea that you could wear God, that the clothing you wore, and he was known for his brightly colored vinyl suits and things like this, were an outward manifestation of the God that dwells within you, right? So he had different answers for different settings, but he wanted this idea – he wanted to get at this idea that jazz music – uniquely could give voice to this kind of abundant, expressive, um, creative energy and potentiality that inhered in the universe itself. And the way he wanted to do this was to come up with a different way of thinking about music as such. Most people in this country, he said, treat music as kind of a background, a soundtrack for life rather than the substance of life itself. He came up with this idea of harm as a way of giving life to the idea that The music was in the foreground, and that if music was approached indeterminately, it could actually be performed and heard in service to these higher principles. So, for Coleman, on on a practical level, this meant freeing melody, freeing notes, freeing lines from the prison house of harmony. Um, Coming out of the Bop revolution, it was very harmonically advanced, things were very vertical, it was about technique, it was about velocity. Coleman, in a certain sense, you can read him as wanting to get back in touch with the the gravity and the grain and the simplicity of the blues lines that he had grown up listening to and playing. But basically, the idea was that when freed from harmony, each individual note, especially if played in a kind of intensely focused improvisational context where where each player is kind of um, reaching out to and merging with the other players, Each note could possess something like the gravity of a star, and each note led to a kind of unpredictable future. So it was like the cosmos would be uh, continually reborn in open improvisation. He he believed that harmonics was a way of systematizing this notion. A lot of folks thought that he didn't really get to the systematization aspect so much he got to a kind of philosophical meditation on the possibility thereof. But that was his aspiration and proved to be phenomenally inspirational uh, over the second half of the 20th century.
1: Now, uh, just because we're getting close to the end of the conversation and Mm -hmm. uh, at least for my liking, we haven't – talked enough about Sun Ra. Uh, I know yeah, you didn't yeah. place him here, but perhaps uh, you could talk a little bit about um, how you uh, examine his kind of narrativization uh, in the earlier chapter, um, but also perhaps, you know, kind of what what he's all about uh, in general and how he might fit into this chapter as well.
0: Yeah. Um, Sun-, Sun Ra, I should say, is one of the few figures uh, in this book and in jazz history to have received, I think, uh, appropriate and substantive scholarly treatment. The others would be um, Ellington, Coltrane, and to a certain extent, Dizzy Gillespie and Mary Lou Williams. So I do, I do in the book give a shout out to um, to the, to the literature on Sun Ra, but I, but I think there's even more there. So Sun Ra is most commonly associated with uh, his 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 self narration, his self mythologization, in a certain sense. And his insistence um, from the 1940s on that he was not from planet Earth, he was from Saturn. And, of course, in the 1940s and thereafter, this read as a kind of fantastical claim, um, especially a claim coming from a young man uh, in in Alabama. Ra believed uh, in the literal and figurative meanings of this statement. He believed that if this planet and I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing his own words here, if this planet could tolerate institutional racism, if this planet could tolerate continual war-making and and things like this, then this planet was insane. Ra consequently said that if sanity on this planet is defined by one's ability to accept these realities which he regarded as insane, then the only sane person's response – to these realities is to perform and to live out what this planet considers insane. So he kind of knowingly embraced the tropes of madness and alienation. And these tropes, as John Sweat and Graham Locke and others show, John Corbett too, link up to longstanding African American preoccupations with histories and imageries of vehicles of deliverance, whether in the literal form of a spaceship, Ezekiel's chariot, for example, or in the figurative sense of a transcendental subject of a historical providence taking shape among African people. Um, So Ra is really coming out of this sense that African American and, and maybe African destiny, broadly speaking, comes from a place of oppression, but is ultimately geared toward liberation, and his contribution to this was to suggest that if the right sounds can be produced, then consciousnesses can be freed up so that they can contemplate what liberation actually entails. And it was toward this end that he began to investigate histories and to uh, suggest that jazz music did not emerge in the American South in the late 19th, early 20th century. But in fact, jazz music was a gift to humanity through the Egyptian sun priests. Um, so all of these cosmological speculations were intimately bound up with Ra's own historical investigation. That was what made him uh, such an interesting figure to me, that he combined both directions, both trajectories.
1: Mm. Now, um, in the final chapter, you um, make a, a kind of a short reflection on what, uh, if I remember correctly, was your imagined uh, f- focus uh, in in kind of previous... Thoughts about what this project might be in in terms of challenging understandings of race and and racial misrepresentation. So, uh, what what is the relationship between interpretations of religion and racial imaginaries? How do race, religion, and jazz come together?
0: Yeah, it, it, and this is really the, the the sort of connective tissue, as you said. Um, what struck me is that. Well, I initially thought that maybe the conclusion would be a, sort of, you know, a final case study chapter, a way of sort of exploring in detail the theoretical resonances of this counter-representational practice. But when I sat down to write the conclusion, I realized that effectively every chapter had been about that. It had just gotten at these ideas and these practices through these six different lenses that I had selected, uh, lenses which were also recognizable. To other areas of the study of religion. So, I wanted to write specifically, and as you mentioned, I did, um, I wanted to write specifically about the habitus of racial, political, and economic constraint, and to show that the languages that had often um, uh, cohered around performances of religious difference in jazz tradition were strikingly and indeed kind of depressingly similar to those languages that historically had been used to denounce, discredit, and constrain African-American religiosity. So there's a there's a historical resonance there that's worth taking very seriously. <laughs> but what was even more suggestive to me was that if I wanted to take this kind of difference, this abundance, seriously as a scholar of religion, I wanted to see if there were implications beyond the study of jazz itself for thinking about forms of religious experience that were less legible than one might expect. And here's where I really engaged, however successfully or not, I can't really speculate, but here's where I engaged the possibility of new ways of writing about religious experience that, that maybe the author could indulge in a kind of improvisational writing only to get at what was actually happening in the religion and the music themselves, you know, not as any kind of scholarly dalliance a theoretical parlor game or anything like this, but as a way of getting as close as we possibly can as scholars, as interpreters to the grain of this experience. And I thought that was significant um, because the field is in a certain place these days um, and maybe has been for a couple of decades. But the field seems to be stuck between a kind of naive phenomenological approach and a kind of naive anthropological approach to experience um, and a kind of discrediting of the very idea that we can write about religious experience. I I wanted to see if it was possible to get at some of these conversations Without falling into the sui generis religion trap, but with also uh, also without falling into the simplistic role of the, the sympathetic chronicler, uh, as, as if scholars can be nothing more than sort of journalists. Um, I don't know how successfully um, I was able to pull this off, but that was, that was what was motivating a lot of my theoretical and poetical ruminations in the conclusion.
1: Well this has uh, been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation uh, Jason so thank you but uh before I let you go can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're you're working on now or uh, perhaps have planned down the road are are you going to re- return to this subject
0: Yeah well first of all let, let me thank you for the invitation for the the immensely excellent conversation like you said we could go on um but <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll just go on at the AR you and I together um But uh, as far as what I'm working on now, I certainly would like to write some more about music, um, but I have no immediate plans to do so, which might be a little bit perverse given how well this book has done. Um, But I want to get back to writing about political religions, and and indeed I have a longstanding project um, that I really think is in dire need of a conclusion. Um, This is my... This is my theoretical investigation of the rhetorics of religious embattlement in the United States. Um, what's going to be interesting as I get back to embattled majority over the next couple of years, what's going to be interesting is to see how writing Spirits Rejoice has transformed or has not transformed my approach to political religions. i very curious to see how that works out. And of course, I'm morbidly curious to see what new information the culture will give me in that regard. Um, so. Hang on to your seats, America. Um, but the other <laughs> thing, the other thing that I think I'm going to work on, um, I was um, I was approached by the good folks at Penn State uh, about contributing to their Religion Around series, which is a really cool series. And I actually I, I thought I might do something about uh, a musician, religion around Dizzy Gillespie, or religion around John Cage, or religion around somebody. I wasn't able to write about overmuch in Spirits Rejoice. And I still might do that, but what I think I'm going to contribute to that series, unless the editors decide they are no longer interested in me or in this idea, um, what I think I want to do is write a book on religion around Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby being the so-called king of comics. Um, so those are the things that I have on deck, two very different projects, but hopefully both motivated by the kind of uh, enthusiasm that uh, accompanied me throughout writing Spirits of Joyce.
1: Brilliant. Well, good luck on all of those, and uh, we look forward to seeing them in the future. Thanks, man. That was my
0: conversation
1: with Jason Bivens about his wonderful new book, Spirits Rejoice, Jazz and American Religion, published with Oxford University Press in 2015. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.